Hello and welcome to another episode of The Comedian's Paradise, a podcast where we speak to absolutely amazing, fascinating and triumphant individuals, people who amaze you. Now, if you like this podcast and you like this episode, share it with your friends, give us a five-star review on Amazon or iTunes and um, yeah, just, just give some love. If you did not like the, the episode, well, just, just keep it to yourself. Don't spread the hate. You know, be quiet about it. <laughs> now, today's guest, he we're in for an absolute treat. He is an awesome man. He is absolutely hilarious. You're gonna love him. Jay Leno loves him. And he has an he has a surname based on a character from Cobra Kai. His name is Sean Eli. Uh, he is a man who is the master of clean comedy and he runs a comedy club called the Ivy League, which, I mean, it has so many stories within itself. I mean, there's nothing more to me to say. I think we should just say hello to Sean. How are you doing, Sean? Good, thanks. Yeah, it's the Ivy League of Comedy is the official name. And I started out calling an Ivy League comedy and then I went to a theater where we were doing a show and they got the name wrong on the marquee. They wrote the Ivy League of Comedy. And I saw that. And first I thought they got it wrong. And then I thought, that sounds much better. So that's what we called it. I changed the name. And was that, look? was that you just sort of present whatever opportunities thrown at you, I suppose? Well, people pay consultants a lot of money sometimes to come up with business names. And sometimes it just falls into your lap. Hmm. It's and you 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 have been quite involved in the sort of corporate world in a way. You have quite an interesting story. You worked in Wall Street. I mean, there's so many stories in there, isn't there? Yeah, I worked on Wall Street, and then I started doing comedy, and said, you know, I have two jobs now, and I can go for the the happy one or the money one, and I took the happy one. <laughs> but you you used all the money from the other one into the happy. I one. didn't. I, yeah, I didn't, I didn't throw my savings account in the ocean. That's for sure. <laughs> you definitely need it now <laughs> yeah well the last year has been tough so yes and so but you have quite so what were you a lawyer or is that what i hear no you know everybody thinks i'm a lawyer everybody i meet thinks oh you, you're a you were a lawyer right no i was a banker but i was not a lawyer maybe it's my argumentative side everybody thinks i at least should have been a lawyer i'm sorry man i'm sorry sorry forgive it's me it's okay <laughs> What's um, I mean, what must have that been like? So going from uni and, and then working Wall Street. I mean, you must have a lot of stories. Like the the, the face that people present to Wall Street is obviously different, but I mean, behind the scenes, there must be all sorts of action. Well, I sort of missed the the obnoxious part of Wall Street, where you know <laughs> people took clients to strip clubs and you know I, and cocaine. I never was part of any of that. But I can say that there were a lot of times I'd be in a conversation at work and I would just say, I no longer wish to be a part of this conversation. I would walk out. And it's not that the conversations offended me. I just didn't want somebody to misremember who said something wrong. And then all of a sudden I get in trouble because I was in the room where somebody else said something bad. So I managed to avoid most of that. There must have been, is it quite a pressurized environment when you're in there? Like are people very sort of boom, boom, boom. It was for a lot of people, I tended to take the jobs that were lower pressure, fewer hours, less pay, more relaxing environment. But yeah, I mean, I would describe sometimes working on a trading floor. They did 
pilots will describe their job as, you know, hours of boredom interrupted by moments of sheer terror. And I think a lot of that would describe Wall Street. There's a lot of sitting around routine work or waiting for something to happen. And then all of a sudden there's a frenzy and you got to work really hard and deal with something immediately. But nothing funny about it. There's that problem. But there must have been, has there been, what's one moment that you remember particularly during your time on Wall Street that sort of shaped who you are today? Leaving it? (laughs) (laughs) I think the decision to not be there anymore was, was one of the better things that came out of that because it was 2009, they weren't letting me do anything at work. It was basically, you can fix whatever problems you have, but we're not letting you do more business. And it was no fun. And I just, you know, didn't want to do it anymore. And said, the hard part was actually getting, you know, preparing a business plan. I didn't need a business plan. I knew what I was doing or thought I did. What I needed to do was to convince my parents that I wasn't doing the stupidest thing in the world. <laughs> and how, how did it lead into a journey of comedy? Well, it's kind of a weird story because I'm from a family where you're expected to go to college and probably grad school, which I didn't. But I went to university, got a bachelor's degree in economics and started working in finance. And uh, I met somebody on a date who had just taken a stand-up comedy class and said, hey, you're funny, you should try stand-up comedy. And I said, you know, and I'd been writing jokes for Jay Leno at that point, but I never performed. And the last time I'd actually been on a stage was a fifth grade play and I hated it and and never performed again. And I said, I don't want to be a performer. And she said, well, you should try it. Take the class I just took. And I took the class and started performing. And, you know, it's a slow start, but it seemed to be working. And at some point I said, you know, I don't have to do two jobs anymore. I'm going to get rid of one. Hmm. And that's, that's, I mean, that's quite a good position to sort of be in in a way, because I mean, there's so many people every day are like, you hear them complain about their boss or their shit job. Oh, I fucking have to work in this bastard. Oh, okay. Yeah. Where are you off to tomorrow? Oh, I'm back to work. <laughs> yeah. Well, the good news is I think I had the greatest job in the world. I make people laugh for a living. I mean, I would describe the previous job I had. I made the company a lot of money and nobody ever seemed appreciative. I didn't get any thank yous. And my job, I get thanked, you know, between two and four times a minute by the audience. And you make someone's days better because, I mean, if they get through a lot of shit at work, I mean, you make them happy for the rest of the day. Yeah. I mean, I describe my job as it's my job to make you forget how much you hate your job. <laughs> and, you know, most people don't love their jobs. And the reason part of the reason is a lot of employers just suck. But also a lot of work just isn't fun. You know, if you're working in a factory, I can't imagine doing the same thing over and over again all day is going to be enjoyable. I mean, if you're painting houses, you may have a sense of accomplishment when you finish, but then you never see the house again. Yeah. It's, and that's what's, um, what, what has been like a moment from someone in comedy or the audience where they've really come up to you and they've really sort of made a moment. So they're like, right, Sean, you've really, change my day well you know it happens all the time people come over and say thank you but one of the hardest shows comics in new york do is there's a cancer hospital called sloan kettering 
and there's there's shows every month there for patients and their families. And occasionally a staff member stops in, but these are really hard shows because as a comic, you're used to having people laugh and your timing is based on, you know, people are gonna laugh here and then I'm gonna go on to the next sentence or the next joke. And you go into Sloan Kettering and there's like, you'll see a, an eight year old bald girl, you know, cause her hair fell out from chemotherapy sitting in a wheelchair or an old person with tubes coming out of all sorts of places and machines that are beeping and lights blinking. And you go out there and you think you're bombing because you don't get laughter because the people are in too much pain. And you, it's just, it's like talking to a wall and it's really hard. And every comic their first couple of times thinks, oh, they didn't like me because they didn't get any laughter. And it's just that the people are in too much pain to laugh. So I did a show and at the end, a guy came over to me and he said, bless you for coming. This is the first time in three months I've seen my wife smile. And that's, that's a lot more meaningful to me than you know going out and killing and getting laughter at a show. But I'm not going to turn down the laughter. No. <laughs> it is, is our drug in a way. Yeah. Well, I, you know, there are comics who say they need it. I think if you said, and certainly if you said to me, Sean, we're going to pay you you know, how much you're going to earn over the next decade and you don't have to go make people laugh. We're going to give you the same money either way. I would still show up to work. But there are comics who need to do it. And there are some comics. It's, it's funny you can tell because if you tell a comic he's doing 45 minutes, some comics will end at 45 minutes and will say to you, you know, if you paid me to do 10 minutes, I would the same money, I would do 10 minutes. And some comics, you can't get them off the damn stage at 45 minutes. They just want to keep going. Hmm. And what do you do you make of the character of those that stay on longer and the ones that, uh, that get off straight away? Well, the ones that get off straight away, I think, understand that, especially at a comedy club. You know, a lot of my shows are in theaters, and if it runs five minutes late, it doesn't matter. Maybe the audience is, you know, wants to go to the bathroom, but it's not a problem. But if you're in a comedy club where they're doing three shows a night at that comedy club, and they've got to, you know, take the drink, you know, they've got to get everybody out the door at the end of the first show, clear the tables, clean up, you know, process all the paperwork, seat the next audience and start the next show. If you take a couple of minutes out of that, and, and then the next comic takes a couple of minutes out of that by running late, and comics, the comedians are doing shows all over town, so they've got to, you know, if your spot is at night from 9.10 to 9.30 and you don't get on till 9.20, well, you're 10 minutes late and then maybe you're going to be 10 minutes late to your next spot and that's going to screw up the other club that you're going to. So comics who do that, I think, are just jerks, essentially. It's not, in the, you know, there's a light in the back of the comedy club they turn on to tell you that your time is up or almost up and there are people who just ignore it. Is it, but is, if, if someone goes on earlier, would that be better? Which, which, which you, I mean, if someone goes on maybe five minutes earlier, would that be better or would you still think that would be a crime? You mean leaves does five minutes less? Yeah. That's well, you got to hope that the next comic or the MCs in the room. I've done shows where um, I can give you a perfect example. It was a new talent night at a comedy club and the comics were each doing five minute sets and the comic, the MC introduced a comic and went outside to smoke a cigarette and the comic, he figured he's going to come back and signal the comic at four minutes. You know, you have a minute left. And after three minutes, the comic just said, thank you. and ran off stage and left the stage empty. 
And I'm like, that's why MCs shouldn't smoke because he wasn't in the room and the stage was just empty. And I was in the, in the lineup a few comics later and I just, I didn't want the audience to stare at an empty stage. So I just jumped on stage and started telling jokes and basically did my set until the MC came back. <laughs> and I, when the MC walked in, saw, you know, me on stage and I wasn't the person he, would, he had just introduced as the previous comedian, I explained, you know, I just jumped on stage because the MC, because the, you know, the comic bailed early. So that was a problem. That was only two minutes. Hmm. But I don't, I don't think if you have a pro comic, they're not going to run five minutes early. Hmm. It's yeah, it's there's a lot of that. I mean, it must be interesting for you in both ways. I mean, it's interesting enough being a comedian on circuits and all the stuff that goes on, but for you to be a big producer, what producing all these shows and be a comic, that must make things doubly more interesting. Well, it's it's more pressure. When I started out, it was pressure because if a comic didn't show up, which has only happened to me three times in all the shows I've done, and fortunately they were you know in comedy clubs with their other comics around and not like in a theater. If I have a theater show and it's me and two other comics and one comic doesn't show up, it's, you know, it's not great, but I can, I can do an hour and a half. So literally if nobody shows up, I can still give the audience a show, but you don't want that. But when you're new and a comic doesn't show up and you don't know how you're going to fill the time, it's a little scary, but it definitely puts more pressure on because I, we shot a TV special just before the pandemic and being the producer of this TV special and trying, and I'd never done it before and trying to arrange everything, dealing with, you know, cameras and, and filling the audience and how we were going to do everything and who was going to go on when, while I was also one of the comics was too much pressure. Mm. It's, do you, what, what's your, I mean, when you're running a gig and then you're hosting at the same time, that makes it doubly harder, I suppose, as well. Well, I've, I've been lucky. I mean, the, the guy who was running the production company that shot the TV special was saying, Sean, stop worrying about this stuff. Calm down. You're going to have to go on stage in 10 minutes and you're going to be a wreck. Just, just relax. And I said, I'm pretty sure I can separate the two. And then when I finished my set and got off stage, he said, you know, you really did. You, you didn't show the pressure. I was nervous because of the TV shoot, but I didn't let the pressure get to me because once I was on stage, all I was thinking about was my job is to be a comedian on stage. But yeah, there's a lot to worry about, especially because a lot of times I'm just working for a percentage of the door. So if nobody shows up, you know, I'm worried, where are the people? Am I going to make any money on this gig? Am I going to lose money? That sort of thing. The best position to be in is to be the headlining comic where you just sit at home, wait for your phone to ring. And then you get booked and you show up and you do your job and you go home. Um, does it, the fact that you're, so with the comedy shows themselves, how many shows do you actually produce? I mean, do you run like two main comedy club shows with paid acts and then the rest are all sort of private bookings? You email people, they email you and then it goes from there or how does it work? Well, I don't produce that many shows at comedy clubs. I don't own a comedy club. Most of this, I do some shows at a comedy club. If you came to me and you said, you know, we we have a corporation and we want a night out and we want you to put a show together for us. I would basically do the equivalent of renting a comedy club and putting on the show there, which is not hard to do in New York. But um, a lot of my shows are at theaters and, you know, a few a month around. There's a, probably a 
20 or so places that I work with regularly. And then there's, you know, private shows. They did a show last night on Zoom for University Alumni Association. And so that was, you know, essentially a private show for about 100 people. And how was it? How, how tell us like your experience of it. <laughs> it was actually kind of weird because um, there was a benefactor who was paying for the event and wanted it for his his alumni group. And I brought it to them and said, do you want to do this? And they said, yes, especially because it wasn't costing them anything. And I said, okay, I'm going to put together the show. And then the guy, the head of the, the president of the class said, oh, we found two other comedians who volunteered to be in the show. And I'm like, no, that's not the way this works. I'm producing the show and I'm going to put the acts together. And because the last thing you want is somebody else telling you who's going to be in the show. And yeah. it turned out they were not, and I looked at their videos. I knew who they were, but I'd never worked with either of them. And they weren't terrible, but I gave them each five minutes and the other comics got 15. I gave them five and each of them went more than six minutes, even though I was sending them private messages in the chat on zoom saying, Hey, you're at five minutes. Hey, you're at five thirty. Hey, you're at six minutes. So they just kept going, but the show went very well. Everybody was happy. With it. <laughs> but yeah, that, 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 that must be, do you, does that happen often now and then, or how often does it happen where someone does that with your shows? You mean wants to put somebody in it? Yeah. It's more somebody, and this doesn't happen that often either, but somebody's like, oh, I want to bring my girlfriend. Can you give her five minutes? And usually the answer is no, because I, I pick the best comics I can for a gig. And if somebody eats it for five minutes, you know, it's disrespecting the audience. But what happens, I do shows at synagogues. Here's what happens occasionally is somebody will say, you know, our rabbi is funny. I think we should put him in the show. And then I say, you know, your rabbi is funny in his sermon, getting laughs because you have to laugh because it's the polite thing to do. And maybe he gets three laughs in an eight minute sermon telling old jokes or stories. It's not the same as stand up comedy. He's going to be embarrassed if a joke doesn't work when all the other comics are going to be boom, 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 boom with punchlines and laughter. But you, so I wrote up a paper and whenever anybody says, oh, we want to put the rabbi in the show, I give them my list of you know, objections as to what, you know, why that shouldn't be. But 99% of the time, the rabbi has no interest in being a show. They just think it's the polite thing to offer him a spot in the show. So usually it's not a problem. And it must be quite interesting because you, you book quite a wide variety of shows. As you said, like you book, like I saw it that you book in country clubs, you book in unis and you book in theatres. And how do you sort of adjust the people you put on and the way you perform? based on who you're working with? Well, here's the thing that happens a lot. A synagogue will say, we want Jewish comics for our show. And I say, no, you don't. You just want the best comics. You don't want, they think they want to hear people talking about, you know, religion and telling stories. And that's the last thing they want because that's all you talk about in temple is religious stuff. So what I say is you don't want three Jewish comics. And then I bring, you know, let's say an Italian Catholic comic and, and he tells the stories about growing up in his family and everybody's like, oh, it's exactly the same as my family. And he'll be like, yeah, but our food was better. 
but what I try to do is maintain a balance because it, the easiest thing in the world would be to put together a show that is three or four white, single, heterosexual males in their 40s talking about going on dates on Tinder. And you think that's not a big percentage of the population, but that's a big percentage of the comedian population. So I try to make sure that my shows are not all, you know, single white males. And I want, I want a variety in viewpoint, in attitude, in energy, so that the show isn't the same person three times. You don't want the same person like with three different faces. You want comedians who are different. And whether it's a country club or a synagogue or a corporate event, it, it doesn't matter. Yeah, that's that's one thing I feel that's sometimes a bit of an endemic in some shows that I see in the UK. It's mostly just white blokes, middle class, the 20s to 30s millennials, and you do that sort of material. And there isn't always that variety. It's like if you go to an open mic night in New York, most of the comics are starting out. They're in their 20s. They live in mom and dad's basement. And the only thing they talk, you know, they don't have life experiences to talk about. So half of their jokes are about, you know, smoking pot or masturbating or playing video games. And it's like, it's, well, first of all, I'm older than that and none of that stuff. Let me put it this way. Hear, not hearing about that stuff doesn't interest me. And I don't think that the audience is particularly interested, especially when it's, you know, the same, same topics over and over again. I did a show once at a, at a comedy club. There was like a, it was a new talent night when I started out. There were like a dozen comics. And for some reason, I think almost all the comics were gay and had their coming out, which is fine. But they all had coming out stories. And a friend of mine was in the audience. He came up to me and he said, I'm so glad that it was just you, that you and that blonde woman weren't telling stories of coming out because I'm just, it was the same stuff over and over again. And I went over to her afterwards and I said, you know, my friend said it was great that, you know, I'm straight, so I don't have a coming out story, but that, you know, that you didn't, and I didn't know that she was gay at the time I was telling her this. I said, my friend was so glad that you and I didn't have coming out stories to tell. And her reaction was, well, I did, but so many other people were talking about it. I didn't want to do more material at the same time. Yeah. And that's, I think that's sort of a mindset that a lot of us comedians probably should have you know, like recognize that and try and develop your own thing because you're not going to be like a product that people can sell or get anywhere. And also people aren't going to find you entertaining. Like you need to get more to you. What's unique about you? Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, when I started out that they said you should talk about yourself because that makes you unique and nobody, nobody can tell your jokes if your jokes are about you. And also if you look at, it's probably not true today, but you know, 20 years ago, they were making sitcoms about people. And the most successful sitcoms in America were basically the life of a comedian based on that comics material. Mm -hmm. So that they were, you know, if you want to be successful, you could be Roseanne or Ray Romano or people or Ellen DeGeneres, people like that. And then they're going to base a sitcom around you because frankly, that's, that's the step to success for most comedians is to, to get on TV with your own TV show. Yeah. That's the life, living sort of people in tours watching us and me, me, me. <laughs> yeah. But what's, and you, one thing I noticed um, when I was over in New York is that the humor tends to be a bit more cruder than the, the UK. The UK is a bit more, there's a mix of it. 
but there's there is also crude stuff as well but i noticed that in america you like to push it more regularly than in the uk where perhaps maybe a bit politer most of the time well i think maybe english people are politer than americans but i i mean i do clean shows most of the shows i produce are clean and I occasionally I'll curse or have something dirty to say on stage if it's at a comedy club and it doesn't matter, but I don't tend to write the dirty kind of jokes, but yeah, I, I would say that most comics in New York can't work clean, but what I understand, I've never performed in London, but that your hecklers are more brutal in London than they are in New York. Yeah, it definitely, I mean, I've been to a couple of hecklers in America as well, and I actually ran an online Zoom heckler show. <laughs> but um i'd say i'd say from what i could see they're both as bad as each other we're both we're both not good <laughs> well I, sh I should add just for your audience that you know there are some comics who are fine with that or encourage it but basically it's rude and it's interrupting and the worst is when somebody thinks they're helping the show by interrupting <clears throat> we have to explain you know we know what we're doing. We don't need your help. You're not helping. It's yeah, it, that happened. But what, what's what about what do you make of the ones that actually go out to try and destroy that person on stage? Like the ones that actually go out to go. You know, long before we came along, our profession brought this on ourselves because if you do that anywhere else, it, like in a Broadway show they'll stop the show and throw you out, right? They'll, they will throw you out because it's not your job to talk. But as stand-up comedians, we've talked back to the hecklers and make it look acceptable, even if it's not. But as you know, we, we size up hecklers pretty quickly because they fit into a few different categories. Because sometimes it's just a, somebody who's so drunk, they don't realize it's a con not a conversation and they mean no harm. And sometimes it's somebody that wants to prove they're funnier than you. Like a guy on a date, I think it's great to bring a date to a comedy club, but not like a first or second or third date, because that should be when you two are getting to know each other and talk to each other, not, oh, we got to shut up and listen to this guy, because a guy wants to impress a woman on a date and brings her to a comedy club, and now she's paying attention to somebody else and ignoring him, and the stranger's making her laugh, and the guy's thinking, no, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. So then he wants to prove he's funnier and gets brutal, and that's, that's a problem. And it's, I mean, it helps for a good YouTube video, though. <laughs> well, and I think putting that shit on YouTube is making it worse for us because it's making people think, oh, it's acceptable the comedian put it on YouTube. I got into an argument with a comic about it because he put these up and I, he put a lot of them up. And I said, you're just encouraging more of that behavior. And he said, no, I think people want to see their friends heckle you. They don't want to do it themselves. And I'm like, it doesn't matter. The fact that you're playing with them instead of, and, and publicizing it makes it look like you're encouraging. Hmm. And so you, you've been in sort of comedy for a while, right? What would you say? I mean, you must have seen a lot of many different types of comedians as a whole. And I mean, now and then you must see a comic that sort of really surprises you. And you're like, wow, what's this? This is something unique. And how often do you sort of see that? And what do you think makes them stand out? I don't know that, I mean, you see people who are brilliant. I don't know that there's a style that, that has shocked me and made me say, wow. I just think you see somebody who's really funny because they have a different attitude. Because I think 
as a stand-up comedian, you're used to seeing things sideways or inside out or backwards. You know, you're basically stand-up comedy is setting a pattern and then breaking it. And you have to see things wrong in order to do that. So comics have a warped view of, of life, but some comics have a more warped view and come up with stuff that's brilliant. But it's not like I've seen a musical comedian or a prop comedian or a puppet comedian and thought, wow, I've never seen that before. When you, how often do you say you see what you've just said there, like in terms of puppet music and that sort of comedian? It's pretty rare, at least in New York, almost never. And here's the thing I think people need to realize. When I was in college, I was in the rowing team. Uh, I suppose, let me put it in British terms. When I was at university, I was in the rowing team and we had to transport our boats everywhere. And after, uh, after graduation, I still would skull and have to put the boat on the roof of my car to go to races. And I was always jealous of the runners and swimmers because they just had to show up. Like a bathing suit is not hard to transport. And now as a stand-up comedian, I just have to show up. I don't have to carry anything. And I look at musicians and they... And they have to carry instruments and magicians have to carry props and, and some of them like need trucks. And even if you're just a guitar act, you have to carry a guitar with you. That's, that's a lot more complicated than just, you know, getting off the train or getting out of your car and showing up for work. And with sort of New York and LA, I mean, they're sort of like maybe the company meccas in a way. And you must see a lot of, what I often see, what I've seen in them is that you get the best loads of great comedians from other states and they yeah. decide to come to New York or L.A. And what, what, what's often the story of that? Um, they're good in their town. And there are there's I mean, those are the two biggest cities for stand up. But, you know, there are some like um, Minneapolis, Seattle, Louisville, Kentucky. There are cities that have a good Austin, Texas, have a good stand up scene. And people will get good. But I think a lot of times what happens is somebody's a road comic. They live in the South or the Midwest and they're making a living, you know, headlining shows at, at B and C level clubs. And they think, okay, it's time for me to make it. And they go to New York and they just get eaten because their stuff isn't original. It's just nothing brilliant. And I've worked with comedians who say, oh, the people who book TV shows are idiots because I kill every time I get on stage and they don't recognize it. And then I watch them and they go on stage and they kill, but they're hacky. They're not doing anything at all original. And I don't mean their jokes are stolen. I just mean they're not doing anything that we haven't seen before. And that's, that's a problem because if, if it's your first time in a comedy club and you think the guy's brilliant, but if you're a comedy fan, you'll be like, yeah, I've seen this. So with regards to, because I, I watched a bit of uh, Kevin Hart on one of the podcasts, and he says that when he was getting mentored, he used to do a lot of gigs out like in universities and all across the country on the weekdays. But in the weekends, he used to always do it in New York. Like, what, what would you say is the right balance of being a road comic and sort of finding your craft in a place like L.A. and New York? Well, I think you need to do both, because if you're only a road comic, I think you're going to be a road comic. If you're in New York, you can get sort of pigeonholed or pigeonhole yourself the same way where, I mean, I was talking to a theater booker in the Midwest and he said, oh, I don't want New York comics on my stage. And I said, why not? And he said, because they just talk about stuff nobody here can relate to. They talk about 
you know, riding subways or how they paid $3,000 a month, a month for their apartment. And of course, people in the Midwest think you're an idiot if you paid $3,000 a month for an apartment because you can buy a house for, you know, $2,000 a month here. So why would you rent an apartment for $3,000? And, and I said, well, the comics I work with may tell those jokes in New York, but they're not telling them in Dayton, Ohio, because it's stupid. But also you get a lot of, we get a lot of tourists. You go to any comedy club in New York at any night, half the people in the audience are not from New York City. So, you know, if you're doing only New York jokes about the subways, even if the people just rode the subway to get there, they may not relate to the joke. It brings me into some interesting points there, because I feel that one of the things that I often hear with a lot of comics that have gotten better is they used to do a lot of road gigs. And then they'll speak to the experienced comic and that they would improve way more just doing gigging seven nights a week and going on the road and speaking to pros that have been doing it for years. I mean, they, as you said, they would do those gigs as well, but they learned a lot from going on road gigs with more experienced comedians. Right. Well, if you're doing a half hour, 45 minutes, it's very different from doing 15 minutes of comedy. Club. So, you know, there's a difference between being a sprinter and a marathoner. But also watching somebody, if you watch, here's something I've realized just in the last couple of years. If you watch a really good comedian, a really famous comedian special on Netflix, let's say, they really pace it out much more slowly. Whereas if you're doing a 15 minute set in a comedy club in New York, you're going bing, 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 bing with punchlines. And even more so on Zoom, like on, I'm a storytelling comic, but on Zoom, I tend to do more one-liner stuff because people don't have the patience necessarily to sit through a 10 minute story. Whereas, and if I'm doing a 15 minute set in a comedy club, I'm not doing a 10 minute story, but if I'm doing 45 minutes, I have more time to spread it out. Hmm. What, what's, um, what would you say Zoom's gonna bring for the future of comedy? What do you think is gonna happen? You know, when things get back to normal, do you think Zoom will still be around? We, we've talked about this a lot in the last few months because what a comedy club would love to do is put a camera in the back of the room. This is, this is how I see it, sort of a hybrid show, because you always want to have the live audience. It's much better to have the people right in front of you than have them, you know, on the other side of a screen with the time delay and they can't hear each other. But what I think might happen, and only if we can make this work pay-wise, is you put behind the comedian is the Zoom screen where all the people at home watching the show. And so the, the audience can see them and the comedian can also turn around and talk to them. Or maybe he's got the same screen in front of him on the floor so he can see what the audience in front of him is seeing. I don't know if I'm communicating this well, but the idea is the people on Zoom are watching a comedy show and they're, they're, there's a live audience and the Zoom people and the Zoom people can be addressed by the comedian the same way the people in the front row can be. And he can talk to either the people on t essentially on TV or the people in the audience when he does the show. Because there's a lot of people who can't get to a comedy show. They don't, they don't have the resources to go to a big city where there's a comedy club. And they certainly, if there's like a, if they're a small town and they have a comedian come through once in a while, it's not gonna be the A-listers. They're not gonna see famous people coming through you know, their 50 seat bar. So there is, a, the question is, is there a way comics are going to be comfortable doing this and how are they going to get paid for it? 
it's and it's a funny thing you said that because I I've been speaking to a few comedians from like these smaller places like Malaysia, Russia, and places like that, and they often speak of how they get. I mean, it happens now and again, but they get famous people coming in, and then people come and support them. But that's sort of every now and then. Well, if you're Kevin Hart and you go to Malaysia, you can probably fill, you know, whatever kind of stadium in Malaysia or theater in Malaysia with no problem. If you have somebody less famous, they're probably losing money going to Malaysia, but they want to go on holiday. And, you know, the, the way I describe it is I've headlined shows on five continents. And part of the reason is my father was a tax accountant and travel's expensive. And if I can find a way to make my, my travel tax deductible, I'm going to do that. So as a result, I mean, I was in just before the pandemic, I was in New Zealand, Australia, and Thailand doing shows. And I didn't make enough from the shows to cover the cost of travel, but, you know, it's something to brag about. And it gets written off my taxes. And I think a lot of comedians who travel, that's the way it works. And what did you make of your experiences in those scenes as opposed to New York? What do you make of the styles and the audiences and what you saw? Well, it was interesting. I think Australia and New Zealand were great. I, you know, no problems there. Um, Thailand, there's a full-time comedy club seven nights a week in Bangkok. And it's barked in audiences who are, you know, tourists. And, and the rich Thai people who went to private school who speak perfect English also would go to the shows. But there's very rarely an, an American who lives there runs the club. But otherwise, it was people living in Thailand doing the shows. And there were some, you know, Australians and, and people from around the world. But you had a lot of locals. And they didn't have a lot of examples of good comedy. So they were like the hacky road comedy. Because, you know, that was all they had. And that was all they saw. And they didn't have good examples to follow. To say, oh, no, a comedian's got to be doing really clever original material. Okay. And... Were there any sort of unique experiences you had on those travels? Like, did you get anyone saying, right, you listen here, Sean, if you don't, if you say that joke again, you're going to get sorted, son. None, none of that. It was <laughs> kind of the opposite. It was like, those, those places were fine. The hardest gigs I ever had were in South Africa. And they just did not get my sense of humor. And, <laughs> and I thought, you know, Western country, English speaking shouldn't be a problem. But my sense of humor didn't go over well there. And I can give you an example of a joke where, well, and this actually, you talk about two joke, two comedians having the same joke. There's a colleague of mine, Karen Bergerine, and she has a joke about this obnoxious Christmas letter that you occasionally get from family or friends that's just all bragging. And I don't know whether people in the UK send out Christmas letters, but occasionally you get this letter and it's like, this is what's up with our family. We're all Nobel Prize winners and blah, blah, blah. And her joke is basically bragging in a different way. And mine is over-exaggerating the bragging. So there are two, two stories on the same topic, very different jokes. But when I tried to do that in South Africa, they're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, I don't know why you don't understand this. And they said, nobody here brags about anything. That's just not part of the culture. We have nothing to brag about. We're a poor country. Yeah. You know, your kid may be a great athlete or a great scholar, but you don't go talking about it. That's... That's an interesting point you made because I spoke to a comedian in India and in India, they speak 50 odd languages or whatever. 
and he speaks quite a few of them and what he does is he spends like maybe a couple of days observing them reading local newspapers and really trying to get a handling of the culture and then he sort of makes references based on that so like i don't know if i had the joke in the london tube i would obviously talk about the new york tube if i was in new york yeah. or if i was and that's how he often goes and does it but <laughs> He even made an interesting point on like when he does comedy in different languages, how like, you know, it's not as simple as just translating a joke. He has to rewrite the whole set. Right. And especially because a lot of jokes are, are based on culture. And I tried not to. I mean, I didn't think my jokes were culturally based, but I'm going to have a joke where I say, you know, I went on a date last night. The wine bar was full. So instead, I took her across the street to the thrift shop. So for the cost of two glasses of wine and a cheese plate, I got her an end table, two lamps, and half an encyclopedia. And you're giving me a blank stare on that. But, I mean, that joke did fine in, in <laughs> Dublin. It did fine in Limerick. It did fine in Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, nothing. And they're like, but why would you take her to a store on a date? Like, the whole point is, instead of throwing money down the drain to buy her drinks, I was buying useful stuff. And they're like, but that's dumb. I'm like, that's the point of the joke. <laughs> and they just like, but it didn't make any sense to them. Hmm. But that's that's probably one of the most interesting things about comedy is th there are there are bits of it that are quite universal, but there's always going to be that bit you have to change. Yeah, and every night on on stage in South Africa, I was just crossing jokes on my off my set list and trying different jokes every night to try to find something that actually worked because half of my stuff they just didn't get did you have to write a whole set for south africa <laughs> well i was talking to the south african comedians because <laughs> most of the south african comedians their jokes are really south africa centric and i asked them about it and they said well during apartheid where you know we didn't get a lot of foreign influence and there were boycotts and and embargoes south africa became a very insular nationalistic country and so we're just used to thinking about ourselves and talking about ourselves. And so most of the jokes were specifically about South African culture. So when a foreign comedian talks about stuff that maybe it's not American culture, but it's just generic, it's just not what they were used to hearing. Mm. Are, are, they, are they quite rough in South Africa as well? Like if, they, if they don't like a joke, they're like, right, come on, son. <laughs> I don't know that they were any tougher than... Maybe a little bit, but I was also, you know, the foreigner who was coming in essentially saying, you should be laughing at this. And then they'd be like, no, we're not laughing at that. So it was a little tougher in that regard. But I don't think the audiences were any rougher than anywhere else. I think. One thing, interesting thing I heard about the South African scene is that you can be just an open micer and you can gig with someone who's on TV quite regularly. Yeah, well, I think in New York, you may have that. We have bringer shows, so you could be doing a, a show and to explain to your audience. I guess you have bringer shows in the UK, right? Yeah, ours operate a little bit differently to yours in that we, you don't necessarily have to pay tickets or anything like that, but you have to bring someone in and it's free. Oh, and okay. Yeah, here that you, you've got to, to get stage time when you're new in a comedy club, they may say, you know, you have to bring five or ten friends to be in the audience and pay the cover charge, two drink minimum. 
and you know it gets a little it's let's say it's 25 or 30 dollars it's not a huge amount of money but if you're 25 years old you don't maybe have friends who have a lot of money to throw away but if you're doing one of those shows you'll be working with pro comics the better clubs won't make the shows all amateur comics they'll throw a pro mc in and maybe a pro opener and closer so you'll get to see a good show one thing that I found that, that I really want to ask of you is that you must sometimes feel a bit like a HR manager in a way when you're being the booker, like you have to deal with disputes with this and that. You have to be a bouncer. You have to be all sorts, isn't it? <laughs> well, I haven't, you know, I always ask comics, is there anybody you don't want to work with? And I think only two or three comics have said, I don't want to work with this person. And one was somebody I said, yeah, I would never hire him. I think he's an asshole. So he's a jerk. I would never work with him. Other than that, you know, it's not really been a problem. So comics pretty much get along. And if not, you know, they can ignore each other. So I haven't, I've never had any fights or, or anything like that. Um, there's a list that the female comics put together a couple of years ago that I've never seen, but it's basically male comics who've been inappropriate. And all I know is I'm not on the list and nobody, uh, I, from what I've been told, nobody that I work with regularly is on the list because clearly if somebody I hired was not behaving properly, I would want to know about it and not hire them. Now that is a funny thing that the UK, because there was <laughs> supposed to be one in the UK as well and they kicked up a big storm because it was apparently tampered with, <laughs> put with wrong names. <laughs> oh. Well, that's, it is a little scary because what if, you know, somebody puts you on the list because they're mad at you and you don't even know about it and you can't get off the list. Yeah, that's what happened. It's it's yeah. just, and your name gets tarnished because people, even if they don't, even if you're proven innocent, there's always that shade of doubt saying, yeah. no, I still okay. think that. But the list in the US, at least as far as I know, is where New York is not public. So the women are sharing it amongst themselves, but nobody else is seeing it. I had an interesting story with that because I remember going to one of the mics and then it, it, he, there was one couple of female comics who said they're going to boycott this mic. So I think he was on the list. Well, when I started out, I tried to get the clubs to put together a clean, because there's a lot of misogyny among the new comics. And I said, why don't we have a, an open mic where there's, you know, nobody is allowed to be offensive doesn't have to be clean, but nobody's allowed to be racist or sexist. And all the comedy club owners said to me was, it sounds like a good idea, but we have enough trouble getting people to show up. And when you add more restrictions, fewer people are going to show up. And I said, actually, you might discover it's the one that people want to come to because of the, the lack of misogyny. And now there's some female only open mics in, in the US. So that gets rid of a lot of that. You've basically just described the bloody ocean with all the fishing and all the all the seafood thing that's going on. There's a, this big program on Netflix where it talks about how we're we're basically taking too many fish at once, and we need to be more sustainable, keep that going. And how that sort of relates to what you're saying is, yeah, exactly. People just with fishing, people should maybe think a bit more. If they don't overfish, there'll be plenty forever. But they just want to grab, grab, grab. And what you're saying there, if people maybe thought about creating a good atmosphere and doing those sort of things for the long run, it would work. But people at the moment are just thinking, quick, money, 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 money. 
getting this yeah. boom, boom, boom. They're not thinking the longer term or repercussions. Well, it's not like the comedy clubs are making much money from an open mic. Maybe they're selling a drink, you know, to 20 people. It's just, you know, a way to use the club on an off night or, you know, six o'clock before the regular show. So I, I don't know why the, people, the two or three comedy club owners I asked said no, but I suspect if somebody approached them now with it, they have a different thought. Maybe. Well, th that's a funny thing. We've all, a lot of things sort of came out in the UK comedy circuit and some of the things are coming out now because of the pandemic. Like a lot of some... But it, one thing that's been strange in the UK comedy circuit is that there's been a big uproar about, as you say, misogyny, and there was doing these big things going on. And then like, a couple of weeks later, all, all loud bluster about we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And then the things still seem the same. Well, I don't know what they can do. I, I think just part of it would be not booking people who are known to be jerks. And that's happening with the more famous comics in the States. There's some comics who there was a big outcry. And I suspect a lot of people aren't going to book them. But if they're, if they're big enough if, and famous enough, they have an audience that's going to follow them. They're still going to sell tickets. I mean, Louis C.K. Um, you know, basically stopped working or had to stop working for a year. But when he decided to go back to work, he just walked on stage at, at the comedy cellar and they put him up and he did a set. And people just, you know, there were some people who were annoyed by it. And I think now the club owner sort of compromised. He said, my job is to put on the best shows and not worry about that. But he tells people in advance if you know there may be somebody on the show that you might be offended by or you know be prepared. Mm. I think the I think the problem arises when you have a comic who like Louis C.K. who says, "Okay, I also want to go into a hundred seat room to work out new jokes," and then people get annoyed because they didn't know he's showing up in this hundred seat room. They're not his fans. Mm. I think definitely some comics who used to look up to him, like, you know, they're not going to be as loud, loud and saying he's my hero now. Well, people used to think Woody Allen was a great filmmaker and now he's, you know, got shut, basically shut down. What's what's your thought? Because I, I was, whenever I talk to so many comics on the circuit, so many people say, all comedians, we're screwed up, all that. And I, when I think of that, I just think, speak to your, speak for your bloody yeah, self. Yeah, I hate that. Because what I say is, you know, there's no scientific evidence that comedians have any more problems than anybody else. Here's the difference. Yeah. We talk about them. <clears throat> if you went to your dentist and he started complaining about his life, you'd find a new dentist. But if I can talk about my normal life problems on stage and get a laugh, I'm going to do it. And then people will point and say, Oh, he's nuts. Listen to him talk and be like, well, everybody has these problems. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's your self-fulfilling prophecy, isn't it? It's like when someone says, oh, I'm this and that. Okay, you are this. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, the difference is we'll, we'll talk about it. So people will say, oh, he's screwed up and be like, you're screwed up in a different way. Just nobody knows about it because you keep it a secret. Now. With you being 15 years of comedy, there must be an absolutely hilarious and scary story that's about, happened. About what? No, just with other comics or just with audience and comedians? There must be something that you, there must be moments that you will never forget. Well, I've been terrified, like for the first five or six years as a comedian, 
I was sometimes terrified going on stage, but my being scared doesn't make a good story. Uh, <clears throat> I'm trying to think of, you know, what, if you want something scary or horrifying? I mean, I've had bad shows. Yeah, well, tell, tell us, tell us one of them, like, tell us, like, something that was brilliant. So one of the things that I happened in one gig that I ran a while ago was uh, the barman wanted to try and attack an audience member. <laughs> oh, okay, here's a story. It's not actually my story, but I was, I was um, at a show. I wasn't the one on stage. A great comedian in New York, Wally Collins, was on stage. And he's on stage, and he's like, and points to a guy in the front row, and he says, I think this guy's having a seizure. And everybody laughs. Nobody can see the guy in the front row and people laugh. And he's like, no, I think this guy's having a seizure and people laugh. And then he looks off stage, sees an employee of the club and says, Cyrus, I think this guy's having a seizure. And they call, they call an ambulance. And the guy was having, having a seizure in the front row of the club. And I think uh, he goes on with his act and then the ambulance, the, the, the medics come in and they put the guy in a stretcher. <laughs> They take them out and then, you know, they continue with the show. But that's, you know, that's, that's a way more distracting than a waitress dropping a tray of drinks to get the audience's attention back. So Did he just act as, as normal and act like nothing happened? Like, was he just casually carrying on? The comedian did the best he could, but, you know, it's kind of tough. <laughs> I had somebody, I was doing a show, a charity show at, at a, at a, country club and another comic was on stage and a woman literally laughed so hard she fell out of her chair and hit her head and i'm like don't do that i don't have insurance you know, she was okay but literally the next day i went and i incorporated because that way i couldn't get sued they can only sue my company because if she'd gotten hurt i mean clearly it's not anybody's fault that she fell out of the chair and hit her head but, you know, in America, we're a lawsuit happy. So people would probably sue for that. And I have to hire a lawyer to defend myself. <laughs> but I, you know, literally fell out of a chair and hit her head from laughing. Bloody hell. I mean, well, at least, at least whoever made her laugh, at least, at least, at least, you know, you put on a good show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I've never had like audience members get into fights or anything like that. Here's something I noticed. So you're wearing a button down shirt. And I'm wearing a polo shirt, so it's not as formal, but at least it's a shirt with a collar. And I've noticed that the comics who dress a little better, even if it's, you know, a polo shirt and jeans and, um, and shoes, as opposed to a t-shirt and sneakers, get heckled a lot less. People don't talk back to you when you're better dressed. And it's made a big difference. So I don't have a lot of heckler stories. Huh. That's not something I've thought of, but that's interesting. Yeah, I don't know if it works in the UK, but it definitely works in America. So I usually wear a sport jacket on stage just to be a little better dressed. What, what do you think is, I mean, comedy is amazing and there's a lot of interesting things in it but what what do you think is going to happen in the new york comedy scene in the future do you think there's going to be like little crews like yo this is the s dot turf of the new york comedy scene you're not allowed in no i think i think things are going to be back to normal and i think 
by the end of May, everybody who wants a vaccine in America will have one. And I think by the summertime, we'll just be back to normal. Maybe they'll require masks. Maybe they'll require people to be sitting a little bit apart. But I think New York is going to be back the way it was in 2019. The comedy, one, one or two comedy clubs, I think, have or will close. But that's out of a dozen. So I don't think things are going to really change. One thing that I definitely ask you about is that because you're like a producer and most of your shows are sort of where you book pro comedians, and that that must be a very good thing in a way because you're under that pressure to be good and you've got to work to a certain level and you have people that are sort of like, well, I've got to be at a certain level, otherwise I'm going to bring the night down. Well, you know, I get a lot of submissions from comics saying they want to work with me and and I watch their videos. Usually the way it works is <clears throat> in comedies, you get recommended by somebody you know. So if a comedy I work with a lot says, talk to this other guy, he's probably good. If I just get a, a video out of the blue, I'll watch it. But usually it's somebody who's too new. And here's the thing about comedians. We think we're better than we are. So I say, especially when we're new, I say you have to get better to realize how good you're not. Because you're going to look back at how you were a year ago and say, I thought I was good then, I wasn't, but now I am. And next year, you're going to look back at this year and say the same thing. So, it, you know, it's a learning curve. And until you've been doing it for 10 or 15 years, you don't realize how, how long it takes to get good. Because I think most of us are a little bit delusional when it comes to our own skills. And so I get, I get emails from comics and they, I, I never say you're not good. I always say you're not ready yet, but feel free to check back in a year or two. And occasionally one of them writes back and says, well, I'm funnier than you. And I'm like, well, what? I would hope everybody in my show is funnier than me because why would I hire somebody less funnier than me when I can just do more time? Yeah. I'd say I aspire to be the least funny person in all of my shows. Yeah, that's 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 the that's the main that's in that way it's it's better yeah it's better yeah but it's it's amazing to me how people really need to learn because i've seen comics get off stage and say oh i killed and i'd be like i don't want to say anything but half their jokes didn't hit and the other half only had half the audience laughing but to them half the audience laughing is killing because maybe they're not even used to that but how do they not notice that you know the next comic up got twice as much laughter twice as often? What would you say is a even with one thing I've found? Yeah, I think we all get one thing is we tend to think we do better than what we did, and when we've done badly, we tend to do better than what we thought we did. Yeah, I you know I record my shows and I watch, you know. And, and so if I record a show, unless let's say there's three comics, I'll offer the other two comics their video if they want it. And if not, I, you know, I just erase it, but is to watch how I did relative to the other comics. And I can give you, I can give you an example. And cause you, you in the UK do something right that we do wrong in America. You, you have the MC be good. Like the MC is a headliner quality comedian because being the first person to open the show, it's the hardest job and you want the audience laughing. So you want somebody good to open the show. Here in America, for the most part, the MCs are the newest comics, they're not very good and they shouldn't be opening the show. And I try to do more of the UK model. I try to MC my shows. 
But I did a show a couple of years ago, probably five years ago at a theater in the New York area. And I wanted a better video. And I said to one of the comics, she was supposed to middle. And I said to her, can you MC the show instead? And she, she MCs a lot of shows at comedy clubs. And she said, sure, as long as it's the same money. And I said, of course, it's the same money. And she said, sure. And she, I watched her and she MCs a lot and took her about 10 minutes to get the audience going. And then she, she did a total of 15 minutes, took her about 10 minutes to get the audience really laughing. And then when I went up, I had a really strong set. And I know she's a better comic than I am, but I was in a better position. So I look better. And I think that's part of it. People will see, you know, themselves doing well relative to somebody else and think I'm funnier. And they don't realize the reason they did better is just because they had a better spot in the show. Hmm. And what do you think is a way for us as comedians to be objective in terms of uh, like not be, oh, I'm bad at this. How can we sort of be like Gordon Ramsay assessment of our set and actually make Oh, you don't want it? that. Oh, my God. You do not want <laughs> Gordon Ramsay assessing your set because he will pick everything apart. He'd be like, you, you'd have 10 great jokes and he'd be like, the 11th joke, yeah, here's everything that was wrong with it. So, no, you don't want that. But... <laughs> I think the level of laughter is, is a pretty good assessment. That's why the beauty of having the shows on video is I can just put it into a piece of software and I can see, you know, my laughter level is, you know, minus 10 decibels and the other comics laughter level level is like minus three decibels. They're getting more laughs than I am. Yeah. I've, I've always felt the video never lies. <laughs> yeah. And unless... The person sitting right next to the camera is laughing like crazy at one person and then that's all you hear <laughs> have you had that i've had worse i did a show when you start out you always want a new video that's better than your last one and i put a video i specifically went to this club to get a video and i put my camera in the back of the room and a friend of one of the other comedians stood right next to my camera and talked through the entire show and all i had was her whole conversation on the video and I couldn't use it for anything. I was so pissed off. I mean, now it doesn't matter, but that really bugged me. So I went through a lot of trouble and planning to be in that show just for the video, and it was useless. I'll tell you one thing that you wouldn't be able to do is put a little mic on them. You wouldn't be able to... I think you'll be a lot of trouble trying to mic all the comedians on the show. Well, what I did, what I do now is my brother gave me a digital audio recorder, and I put it on stage right in front of me. The difference is so somebody once said the best place for a camera is the workplace for a microphone because the microphone on your video camera in the back of the room is pointing at the comedian, it's, but the audience is facing the other way and laughing in the wrong direction. So a mic on stage captures the audience laughter, but it doesn't capture the comedian except on an echo. So it doesn't, the comedian doesn't sound as good. So you got to blend it. Yeah. So one thing that I want to ask is like, what has comedy given you that you didn't get for your previous life? Um, happiness, freedom. <laughs> um, I don't need an alarm clock. I, I mean, I, I used to need, eight, when I was a, a banker, I had an eight hours sleep. My alarm clock would wake me up. I'd still be tired. Now, pre-COVID at least, I, I wouldn't use an alarm clock. And after about seven hours, I'd wake up and I'd be fine. Now during COVID, I haven't been sleeping well. But the fact is, I almost never need to use an alarm clock unless I have a flight to catch. 
and I'm my own boss. If there's, and I'm successful enough that if I don't want to work with somebody, be it a theater or a comedian, I don't work with them. So if, there's a lot less misery. Now, I don't have an HR department. I don't have a retirement plan. I don't have, you know, company paid health insurance. So that I certainly miss, but I don't miss having to be on a train at three or seven o'clock in the morning. And to, if my name was Jim and I'm, I'm doing comedy and like, yo, I want to be famous. I want to be the Kevin, I'll be this and that. And like, you know, I want to be famous and I want to go for the, you know, I'll do anything to be famous. Even as you say, work with people I hate work with doing this and that just to be famous and put myself for all this pain what would be your advice to them i think you've got the wrong objective um you want to be famous but focusing on fame is not the way to get good at your craft what you want to do is be the best comedian you can be and then maybe you'll achieve fame now part i say comedy is is one third writing one third performing and one third marketing and you got to be, if you're good at two of them, you'll probably succeed. If you're good at three, all three of them, you'll be Jim Gaffigan and, you know, or Kevin Hart and you'll make a great living. But I think concentrate on being the best comedian you can be. And also, once you're good, start looking out for your career. But for your first, you know, five, at least first five years, only worry about being the best comedian you can be. Because if you chase fame, you're going after the wrong thing. Nobody gets famous trying to be famous unless they're a serial killer. <laughs> that's a good, that's definitely a good bit. Because, I mean, with TikTok and a lot of social media things, I think with with some some of the things that I see, like some comics, they've been barely going a year and they already think about doing our shows. But one of the things I think of is if that's bad, then that's going to reflect all the comedians out there. And that's going to have a, bad reflection on all of us well that's what happens somebody gets famous through something you know youtube or tiktok or or twitter and clubs will book them because they have a zillion followers and people will go see them but then the show is going to suck and that's a problem and what they're starting to do now is they'll hire a middle act to do you know 45 minutes because they don't have much to do i mean if you remember Charlie Sheen before or after he flamed out, um, he, he went on tour and he tried to be a stand-up comedian. He was a you know good TV actor, but he couldn't do stand-up comedy. But he had people buying tickets to his shows. It's yeah, it's 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 a strange sort of um thing. It's I mean what damage would you say that does if someone gets really quick? To, 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 to the people that come to see it and someone's unfamous or tickler not ready, what effect do you think that will have for other comedians and other comedy shows? I don't know. I can tell you as somebody who books places like country clubs or theaters that it's not the hardest part of my job in the marketing of what I do is not to convince them to try a stand-up comedy show. The hardest part is when somebody else already did that and gave them a terrible show and then they'll be like, oh, well, our audience doesn't like stand-up comedy. You're like, no, your audience doesn't like bad stand-up comedy. You booked a bad comedian. I mean, if you go see a band and the band's terrible, you don't say music is terrible. You say that band was an awful band. But people will go see a stand-up comedian <clears throat> at a venue and the comedian's bad and they'll be like, well, we'll never book another stand-up comedian. 
And I say, you know, if you hired a caterer and somebody got food poisoning, you would never hire that caterer again, but you wouldn't stop eating. You just eat different food from somebody else. But in comedy, it's harder. So I, I suspect that if somebody goes see somebody famous at a comedy club and they're not funny or they're not funny for more than five minutes, yeah, they may never go back to that comedy club, even though it's the audience's fault. And if you go see somebody do stand-up comedy because they're famous for, you know, doing a Trump impression on YouTube that's a good impression but is just one joke or, you know, smashing eggs on their heads or whatever stupid stuff you might see. If you go see somebody who smashes eggs on their heads and gets a laugh, thinking they're going to be a good stand-up comedian, that's on you. It's interesting, eh? It's interesting. We live in an interesting world. Well, a comedian colleague of mine, Josh Homer, said something I thought was brilliant. And he probably said this 10 years ago, and it's more apropos today. He said when he was 25 and he'd been doing comedy for a few years, he went to try to get booked on TV. And they said, well, you need 10 more years of experience. So come back when you're 35. When he's 35 and he went back to them, they said, oh, we're booking 25-year-olds. So that's pretty much what's happening. You don't see people making their late night TV debuts in their 40s anymore, even late 30s. Everybody's 25, 26 years old. And that's what the market wants. And I understand the business decision. Of the, they want the advertisers want young people on the show because they want to attract young audiences to watch. But the problem is the people they're booking just don't have the experience to be good. And what, how do you think that will change comedy as a whole? I think it hurts comedy because you, if you watch late night TV and you see a comedian who's not as good, you're not going to go see comedy. Hmm. One thing that we have some in, with some comedians in the UK is that they're quite old, but they have their own sort of cult following. Like we have people like Jerry Sadowitz, we have people like um, Daniel Kitson, and they have a cult following. They're not necessarily mainstream, but wherever they go, they can get a whole room filled with hundreds of people. I mean, we have that. Boston has a couple of comics who have that. Like they're locally famous. And, and can sell out rooms. But I mean, there's comics who, in America, comics don't get famous unless they get a TV show for the most part. So Louis CK, I don't think was famous in the way a TV show, certainly like, like Roseanne and, and Steinfeld and people like that can sell out rooms because they, they're famous from TV. There's some comics like Brian Regan is famous not from TV, but that's, and he can sell out big theaters, but he's the rarity. Most of the time it's TV that makes a comics career. And with sort of things shifting to Netflix and all these stream shows and YouTube, what do you think is going to be, because TV is also a dying art form, what do you think is going to happen there? It's going to take a long time for it to die. I mean, what people describe as linear TV, where, you know, a TV show comes on at a set time, on a set night is sort of going away, but it's gonna be there for at least another decade because, you know, I think the big change was when Netflix just said, we're gonna release the whole season at once, you can binge watch it, which I think is completely insane. It's weird as a business model because then all you have to do is like go on Netflix one month a year and watch all your shows. But it's certainly, it's certainly not good for the health of the American 
TV viewer because people will sit and they'll watch TV for six hours in a row. But I don't know that in the short run, that's going to change much. But let's let's see what happens. I mean, I'm 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 hopeful with everything that's happening. I'm I mean, I'm glad with the vaccine. You know, it's it's amazing what can get done when we actually bother. <laughs> oh man, if this if this I don't know what things were like, you know, in in 1918, but if this had hit 10 years ago before or whenever it was, people didn't have high speed internet. It would and, and clearly the science of developing vaccines. If this had hit 10 years ago we would have been in a, a terrible depression. There'd be no kids wouldn't have an education for a year. Um, people wouldn't, we wouldn't, you and I wouldn't be able to have this conversation or we'd be having, even if we had this on the telephone, you'd be paying, you know, some number of pennies per minute for the phone call, you know, overseas. <laughs> and I don't know what people would do. People would have been horrified. People, companies wouldn't have been able to conduct business without the it could be a sketch. There, there's, a, there's a joke. We need to write this down. It would just, the pandemic would have been awful. I mean, in, in 1918, it was terrible. People, a lot of places didn't have central heating in their residences, but now it's so much different, at least in, you know, in, in the Western countries and developing nations, it's, you know, there's places where they don't have the internet or, you know, phone service or something. It's obviously terrible, but for us, I, I, what I don't understand about some of the people in America, they're so horrified they're being asked to don't go out as much and wear a mask and they act like, you know, they're being put in jail. But we're bloody lucky to be where we are even now. Yeah, yeah. exactly. We need to be thankful, man. Well, I'm vaccinated. So I've been going to stores to get the stuff done that I haven't been able to do in the past few weeks. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah. My parents are going to get vaccinated soon. They had their first dose, but they're getting their second soon. Oh, because here they reduce the age to 18 almost every place. And at least in, there's some states it's easy to get a vaccine because most of the people in those states don't want one. But in New York, at least in New York City, a month ago it was impossible. And now you'd basically go online and you get an appointment the next week. Oh, fantastic. I'm moving to New York now. <laughs> right ahead. Well, it's been great to have you on. Thank you for sharing your wisdom. And comedy guys, listen up. <laughs> wisdom okay I'll, I'll take that thank you um but what what if, if people want to find out about you what and the comedy your comedy club how do they get in touch and how do they find out about you and uh, great question my website is brainchampagne.com and if you misspell champagne it's because you don't drink enough of it and if you misspell brain i don't know if there's hope for you <laughs> unless, unless English isn't your first language, and then I'll say, fine, you get a pass. And on my website, there's not just a lot of comedy videos, but there's 50,000 words worth of original comedy, which, to give you an idea, that's about half a novel's worth of jokes. And some of them are topical, and the topics have long gone away. It was like jokes I wrote late for late night TV, you know, a decade ago. But a lot of them, you know, you read them and you laugh. You could... You could binge read my website instead of Netflix and it's free. Okay, guys, listen up. Okay. <laughs> and um, any, any sort of, any, la any, any, any last words, what would you like to say? <laughs> uh, for comics, I would say work on your weaknesses, not your strengths. So if you're a good writer, 
you need to perform more. If you're a good performer, you need to write more. And for everybody else, go to a comedy show. Comics need your money. <laughs> and that's true. And guys, back home, it's 50 pounds for every show, okay? <laughs> Is that the pay or that's the admission price? That's the admission price. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, well, best of luck with everything. And hopefully I'll see you soon when you're in London or if I'm in New York. Well, I'm hoping to make it to the UK when this mess is over. So I will see you there. Thank you.